This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. All right, welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. On this show, we interview individuals who have overcame addiction and any type of adversity in their lives and live to tell about it. Uh, These are extraordinary people with uh, amazing stories of hope and perseverance. Um, I have my friend John on the show, John S. So, John, how long have you been clean now? Eight and a half years. Eight and a half years. Yeah, I heard you speak a bunch of times, man. I love hearing your story. Um, if you just want to hop into it, you go for it. All right. Thank you. I'm an addict called John. Hey, John. Thank you for asking me to to come and do this. It's really a cool um, platform. I was that addict that didn't think that it was possible to get clean. You know, I thought I was going to live that way and die that way. It just did not seem possible for somebody like me. You know, and, and in recovery, we talk a lot about bottoms, you know, and we talk about like, where did we get to our lowest point? And, and did that moment, is it the breaking point? Is Mm -hmm. that moment that made you decide that you wanted to get clean and stay clean? And, you know, it's just not my story. Like, you know, I, and I I think that's like a a misconception, you know, like everyone asked me, like, how'd you get clean? Like, it was like this one defining thing that like changed, but it wasn't like that for me. Like, I didn't really want to get clean. I don't think I wanted to get clean until I had like two years clean. I was really like, <laughs> you know, like, like there's still a part of you that wants to use. Like you don't ever destroy that part of you, you know, like it's just always kind of there. For sure. Um, for me at least. Yeah, no, I, I identify with that completely. For me, it was this thing of that, you know, I didn't use until I was older. And I, and I say this and it's kind of a funny thing when I say it is I didn't take my first drug, like, intentionally to get high, right? Like, we learn things in recovery. We learn things like that alcohol is a drug, right? So I definitely was that addict that excluded alcohol. I didn't think that that was really a drug, you know? But I was like a goody two-shoes. I didn't even smoke weed. Like, I didn't get into the drug scene. And, you know, I remember the day, the very day that I took the very first substance that I wanted to get high. How old were you? I was 30 years old. Wow. 30 years old, and... So I'm a registered nurse. Me and this um, friend of mine, we went to do a travel assignment in um, Longwood, Florida, right? Um, in Fort Myers, Longwood. We were working these 12s, back-to-back 12-hour shifts, staying in a hotel, making a bunch of money. And it was our night off when we went to go to the movies. Like, I thought that's like a normal thing to do on your night off, right? And we're at this movie theater, and she looks at me and she says, 
you know, I just wish you weren't such a mama's boy and you knew how to have fun. And it like hit me in a dagger and I was like, I can have fun. I definitely can have fun. What are you talking about? And she's like, no, 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 not the kind of fun that I'm talking about, right? You know, she didn't come right out and say, you know, I'd like to party. Let's let's party. She didn't say that to me. She was like, all right, come on, let's go. We walked out of this movie theater. For me, that was wild because I had never like gone to a movie theater, paid for a ticket, and then just abandoned the mm-hmm. theater. Like I thought, wow, like that was wild. <laughs> and we go, we go to this bar and we're sitting there having a drink. And she hands me a pill under the table. And I'm like, what is it? And she says, if I tell you, you won't take it. And I don't know what happened at that moment. And you're a nurse. Like, you have extreme knowledge of pills. Yes. So, and I, But it was it definitely wasn't a pharmaceutical-looking pill, right? Oh, like, it okay. didn't look like— You didn't like, know what it was yeah, by looking it was, at it. It was, like, pinkish-purple-colored. It was, you know, it turned out it was ecstasy, ecstasy. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I popped it in my mouth. She doesn't tell me what it is. And I don't know why, like, at that very moment, I thought, I'm going to be daring. So— about a half hour later, she's like, let's go. We get in the car, and I'm driving down Federal Highway and Port St. Lucie, and all of a sudden, the wheels don't feel like they're on the ground anymore. And I look in the mirror at myself, and my eyes are just dilated like cat eyes. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, holy shit, I feel good. I feel great. And she took me to a Walmart, right? I'd never—this is just a date. It's in 2000, right? Mm-hmm. It's the year 2000, and— I'm in a Walmart. I had never been in a Walmart before. They had not made their way down to South Florida yet. And Mountain Dew Code Red had just come out. And I said to her, like a little kid, I need to get a Mountain Dew Code Red. Like, and I was all hyped up. (laughs) I didn't know what the feeling was, but I can tell you that um, she brought me to this guy's house who was a friend of hers who they were going to party. And we went there and they got me on a rug and they started massaging me. And the next thing I knew, I was getting a blowjob. And I just remember thinking, from a guy, (laughs) and I remember thinking, oh, everybody knows. The secret's out, right? Like, it's just the three of us. But I'm like, the secret's out. And people didn't know you were gay at that point. So I hadn't, I hadn't openly come out. I really? Yeah, I didn't tell anybody. Like, I mean, it's super obvious <laughs> for people who know me. Like, it shouldn't have been a big surprise. But mm-hmm. in my mind, I really believed. Like, if I kept this story up of that, I was raised by all women. My biological father wasn't a big influence in my life, and I was raised by women. So, I mean, I managed to get somebody to marry me. And I believed at 21 years old, I believed that if I got her pregnant and had a wedding and nobody would think anything, Mm -hmm. everybody would buy the story. And at that moment, like the switch went on for me that night. And I remember waking up the next day and saying to her, let's call in sick. I want to do that again. Like, (laughs) and it was my first, and she was like, no, we're here to make money. Like she definitely, she may or may not be an addict. At the time she wasn't though. Right. But at that time, she was able to say, no, like, you know, we got to go to work. That's what Mm -hmm. we're here for. And all I could think about was, I want to do that again. And it was fun for a while. You know, it was fun for a while. And I came out of the closet and I started to explore sexually. And I became, I thought that I became okay with my sexuality. But what happened was the drugs made me stop giving a shit what anybody thought. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really care about myself anymore either. Yeah, there's a difference between um, being confident with who you are and then having that facade of like, I don't care what anyone thinks. Because when I got clean, I had that chip on my shoulder, like, oh, I don't care what people think about me. The reality is, is that I had such low self-esteem that like, I couldn't care. But like, I've learned in recovery, like, I do care what people think about me. I just care what like my mom thinks. I care what my close friends think. I think what I think 
cares. Like how I feel about myself matters, you know? But like, I don't care what someone thinks of me that doesn't know me that well because they just have like this small glimpse of me. So like, why would I pay much attention or thought to somebody who only knows a small part of it, you know? You know, a lot of people do that where they come with this thing, like, I don't care what anyone thinks about me. Yeah, it's a lot of a front. And the thing is, is that until you get into a 12-step a program, start working steps and have a sponsor guiding you through it, like, I went to college. I was a registered nurse already. I had bought a home. I had done the things that, quote, we think are the right things to do when you're growing up. But I didn't learn any of those things. I didn't learn how to have self-esteem. I didn't learn how to have respect for myself. Every friend that I had or that I thought I had needed me for a financial reason or for what I could do for them. It wasn't until I got here in recovery that I found people who wanted to be around me because I had recovery. They wanted to be around me because um, I was passionate about the 12 steps and I was passionate about staying clean. And that was not something that I didn't, I definitely didn't come here for that, Mm -hmm. right? I did not come uh, to get clean thinking that I'm going to become somebody's sponsor or I'm going to want to carry a message. That was not a plan at all. So what happens in the story? Okay, so from there, I started to to party a lot. You know, lots of weekends, going down to South Beach. You know, I found after-hour clubs. I didn't even know they existed. You know, here I am. I'm going to a club at 2 a.m., starting at 2 a.m., mm-hmm. because that's just to get started. And the next club's going to open up at 5 a.m., and I'm going to stay there till 10 a.m. and come out with, you know, sunglasses on and thinking I'm the coolest kid. All of a sudden, you know, I've got friends. I've got... Um, this social life that seems amazing. And then I started to have what I refer to as suicidal Tuesdays. I just couldn't get up and go to work. I depleted all my serotonin, just didn't feel good at all. And somebody introduced me to opiates. And for me, I started out with Percocets, five milligram Percocets, you know, and then I found myself taking two, three, four, five. Now I'm taking 10 at one time. And so 50 milligrams is what I actually need. And somebody said to me, you know, you can go get these 30 milligram Roxy's. They call them blues. And I was like, where? Somebody gave me the name of a pain doctor. Mm-hmm. I went there. I remember going into that appointment and coming out like in shock that I was spending a ton of money buying them on the streets. And here I went into this doctor's office and I like left. Like 150 bucks. I think $200. I mm-hmm. left with a bottle of Xanax, 200 and something um, 30 milligram Roxy's, liquid Roxy to put under my tongue, patches, like you would have thought for sure I'm ready to check into hospice, mm-hmm. but this is the kind of stuff they were giving me. And um, then you would think being a nurse that I could have played the tape through and I would have said, oh, these are going to be physically addicting. I am going to get sick when I have to, that never crossed my mind at all. I just thought to myself, I feel great on these I see no reason not to take them every single day Mm -hmm. for the rest of my life. What happened with your marriage? So um, we didn't actually um, stay married. We got a marriage license and crazy. So (laughs) I wasn't using back then. I was still young. I was in the process of building a career. And I just remember that I was miserable. I was so unhappy. And I remember my mom talks about this all the time. I remember being on the edge of my mom's bed crying and saying, I can't do this. I can't be married. I can't have a baby. I can't do this. And she said to me... Did your mom know you were gay? So she did, but I never told her. You know, I never came out. She just knew. She said she knew since I was a little kid, Mm -hmm. right? But she kept saying to me, you don't love Tanya. And oddly, I did. I loved her as a person. 
I just wasn't in love with her. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't heterosexual guys. I was not sitting around thinking, oh, I can't wait to have sex with her. Mm -hmm. Right. That was not my thought. Like, uh, you know, I share this with sponsees all the time because they only know me as this. They know me as an openly gay man who's been clean. They've been clean. Yeah, even myself. Like, I can't even imagine you not being gay. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Because also because I became so open about it, it was not like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I do think that there was a time where I was marginally passing it off because I would try to watch my mannerisms and I was more quiet and shut down. But I share with my sponsees all the time that they were like, you could have sex with her. And I was like, yeah, yeah, they can't imagine, right? Like the, and I was like, yeah, I said, they're I, like, gross. Yeah, so like your kids, right? So I remember going to see um, Interview with a Vampire with Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. Of course, it's great. Right? And, and Rice I, wrote that. Yeah. And I came home and I jumped up on top of Tanya and I was like, just best sex we ever had. And she went to go moan, and I literally put my hand over her mouth and said, stop it, you're ruining it. <laughs> because in my mind, I was fantasizing about someone else. Yeah. And, like, and that taught me also that the mind's really powerful. Like, I could convince myself that I could do something that in my heart I didn't really want to do. And so I forced that situation. Um, bottom line was is that, um, you know, she was newly pregnant. We did a rush job at everything. And... I sat on my mom's at the end of her bed crying that she redecorated the bathroom. And I was hysterical. Like, I can't live like this. She was, you know, doing what women normally do. <laughs> they move in your house, they start yeah. to decorate. And I was just like, I can't. And and I still, you know, that wasn't the end of dating women for me, though. Like, I still tried to date women and I would still try to convince them. You know, I remember having sex with somebody and them saying to me in the middle of it, are you sure you're not gay? Like, and getting mad at them, like, what the fuck, you're going to ask me that now? You know, this is an inappropriate time, (laughs) you know, but that is really where it took me to. And finding the drugs made me feel comfortable in my own skin, or at least I thought they did. Mm -hmm. But quickly, quickly I got to a bottom. I ended up partying with one of my friend's boyfriends, right? So my friend had this boyfriend who loved to party, loved to do ecstasy, loved to do cocaine, and... What ended up happening is we would party together and we started watching porn together and he was straight. I don't know what happened. Things started to happen between us. And all of a sudden he left his girlfriend and moved in with me. Mm -hmm. And I talk about this with my sponsor all the time that I thought, you know, that was my reference to a real loving relationship. That was my reference to I thought I fell in love and I didn't know until working steps that. Um, I had taken on a hostage, you know, and my everything was about him. You know, I wanted to be with him 24-7. I started to push my family out of my life, but I was out now. I was out open, and my family didn't understand it. They were like, so he comes out, he says he's gay, but now he's with a straight guy. I don't get it. They didn't understand it. And more importantly is that my disease had taken off. The progression of how I was using, I was now shooting up. I was um, getting in trouble at work. I mm-hmm. had, um, I started diverting medication. So I would work in the ER and the doctor would order Dilaudid two milligrams for somebody. They were lucky if they got a half a milligram. They probably got nothing. I would just take it, give them some Benadryl or water or something. And I started to be okay with that, right? I do remember that an ER physician said something to me one night. We were sitting at a table eating in the cafeteria. And he said, it's really odd. Your patients seem to have more pain than anybody else's. 
Because I was always going like, can she get another two of Dilaudid? Like mm-hmm. she's screaming in pain, you know? I was constantly like the advocate for my my patients. And I ended up getting in trouble um, for diverting. And uh, I'll just tell you the day that it happened. Is ha- that what they call it when you steal medication? Mm-hmm. That's what it diversion. is? Diversion. Yeah. Diversion to medication. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like a fancy word. <laughs> yeah, it is. You're stealing medications. Yeah. Um, for that are supposed to be for the patients. Yeah. Wow. And I, I remember the day I got in trouble. Like these are the things that, you know, again, things that you think are your bottom that are going to make you stop. I was on my way to work. I'm at my mom's house and she looked at me and she said, you are so high. You are going to lose your job. And I remember saying to her, I'm not going to lose my job. I'm better at my job like this. I run circles around people. How do you think that I work five 12-hour shifts a week and I'm fine, right? Like, I need to be up. I need to be up and going. And so I went to work that day, and I was. I was high as shit. And I went in the bathroom, and I was in charge. And all of a sudden, I hear somebody knocking on the door. John, come on. We got a code. And I said, all right, I'm coming. Like, the adrenaline hit me that they were calling me. And I pulled my pants up, ran out there, grabbed some gloves, and jumped up on a stretcher to start CPR. And somebody tapped me on the back, and they were like, hey. And I'm like, what? And they're like, get down. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I had forgotten to take the needle out of my leg, and it was just dangling there. Oh, my God. And, you know, and the the disease is so insidious that the lies that you'll tell, right? Like, I remember saying, like, oh, I was giving myself an antibiotic. You know, like I don't have veins and I have an infection right now and I'm I'm doing antibiotics every eight hours. I don't have any veins left in my arm. So I had to shoot up in my foot. They were like, well, you're going to have to explain that to the board of nursing. Mm-hmm. And so there started my IPN. Were you doing heroin at this point or mainly just pharmaceuticals IV? So I never actually did heroin. I did pharmaceuticals. So if I could get Dilaudid and and pure IV form from the hospital, it was the best. That was what I wanted. I had this fear. I had this weird fear, not a normal thing that I don't think addicts normally have. Mm -hmm. But I had this fear that if I smoked crack, did heroin, or smoked meth, you would die. That I would die or I wouldn't, it would get so bad for me. And not because I thought I was better than or only because I thought I'm going to love it so much. Because I there wasn't a single drug that I ever did that I went, yeah, I don't like that one. Mm-hmm. You know, I liked them all. It didn't matter what they were. I remember um, the same girl who got me the to do ecstasy for the first time. She also got me to do ketamine. And she her husband said, um, I just snorted it, right? And her husband said to me, you know, you can shoot ketamine up. It's a total different type of trip. And I remember the words coming out of his mouth. The threshold to death is very small margin. So you have to be meticulous in how much you measure. Shoot up. And when he said that, I went and grabbed a bottle of ketamine. And I was like, so how much? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, how much do I have to do? And like, and, you know, and he was like, I remember him saying to me, what, how much do you weigh? How tall are you? He's going to figure out my, <laughs> my body surface area to tell me how much. And I'm trusting. He's just another junkie. <laughs> just and some I'm random trusting, dude. Some random dude I'm going to let tell me to do this. And, and I did it. I injected the ketamine and I laid on my ground in my, um, my living room, believing that I just got into a limousine with Mariah Carey Mm. and like the trippiness of it all. And those days, it still felt (laughs) like such a funny dream. (laughs) Like that's what you envision. Yeah. I thought I got in the back. (laughs) Yeah. And I realized like, what's ketamine like? It's like being in the back of a limousine with Mariah Carey. (laughs) Exactly. I was trippy. I was in a place of wanting to experiment with anything. You know, if it was going to take me to another way, 
I was willing to do it. And I didn't know, I just didn't know that what that was about was that I didn't know how to deal with me or any of my feelings. I didn't know how to be okay with John just the way that he was. I didn't know that anybody could accept me for who I am. I thought the only way is because you're as fucked up as I am and we're going to do this stuff together. And and now I instantly have friends. So things that, you know, I ended up having to go into a five-year program called IPN, Intervention Project for Nurses. And so this is uh, so people that don't know, there's a board of, of nursing that when people get some type of discipline or whatever, they send you to IPN, which is basically a supervision program for anyone in the medical field that has a substance abuse issue, right? Yes, exactly. And I went in voluntarily, right? So there's two ways to go in voluntarily or court ordered, right? So I went in voluntarily and I wasn't ready to get clean. You know, I didn't know what getting clean really looked like, you know, but I was scared. I had How old are you at this point? Um I am twenty no, not twenty three, thirty-three. Thirty-three? Thirty-three years well, old. So only three years have gone by yes. since your first drug experience. Mm-hmm. I'm thirty-three years old and things were looking grave. Things were looking bad for me career wise. Of course that job fired me. And I didn't stay clean, you know, and um, and I was a clever addict. Like, I was a very clever addict. So I would have friends that would come over, and they have kids, and I'd be like, hey, can you have your kid pee in this cup? And they would look at me like, you're so fucking weird. Why do you want—and I, I would have cups in my freezer with dates written on them, and I would keep piss behind the broccoli. I used to do that at my parents' house, behind the chicken. Yeah, just hide it. And I would get dropped. You know, you call in the morning. Things are different now, but you call in the morning— Every morning you call to find out whether you have to go drop. And my color was bronze. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget that, right? You call and this lady would say, thank you for calling the IPN. The colors today are gold, brown. And I would brown, <laughs> like so close scared. to bronze, right? You know, and that randomly you get selected probably once to twice a month. And you never knew when. And you'd have to go in and drop. And I would try to like. First, I started like trying to time it. Like I think there's an algorithm to this and I can figure it out. I'll know what days I can get high, what days I can't get high. What I didn't know was there weren't any days that I was able to not get high. (laughs) I just got high every single day. I didn't know how to not get high. And so um, I started to take people's urine with me. Like I'd have it with me just in case, you know, wake up in the morning, go to work. I would heat it up, put it in a coffee cup, put it in the coffee cup holder in my car, leave it in the hot sun in Mm -hmm. Florida all day. And if they called me and I had to go to LabCorp to, to drop, at any given time, I was ready to go. So when I was using I had like the exact same thing. I think for like a year, my routine was wake up, strap piss to me, grab my phone, grab like some money or whatever. But that's like what I needed to leave the house. And I used to like tie a string around my waist and I'd keep it in like a Visine bottle or like a, an Afrin bottle. And then I went to the ski store and I bought mitten warmers, and if I had to drop that day, I would warm them up, like get them going, and tape them to the side of the Visine bottle. And it's like this is like normal, wasn't yeah. even like a pain in the ass. And then we get clean, and like we don't want to call our sponsors, we don't want to like go to meetings, we don't want to work stuff. But like taping urine to my body for a year, a year was like totally normal. Yeah, it's hard work. It's hard <laughs> work to stay sick. Yeah, you know. Um, so I managed to get through five years of IPN. Right. And it's very unusual. My story is. um, Wow. Yeah. My story is three times, three times in a program that's five years long. Hmm. So um, first time, 2000. It's a five year long program. It's a five year long program. 
You completed it the first time? I completed it. With but faking your urine. But you're urine. using it the whole time? Yep. They couldn't tell that you were using? So I think that they had suspicion. You know, granted that the facilitators for this, they're nurses. Most of them are nurses that um, are also either in recovery. And I found out through becoming friends with some of them over the years now that depending on whether they really work a program themselves or not, they mm-hmm. might just be in it for the money themselves, right? They, you know, you collect money from each participant to hold a group, mm-hmm. you know? So it's not a lot of money. I figured that out too. They're not making a shit ton of money, but mm-hmm. they get paid to do it. And it's, you know, are they working a program themselves? Are they keen enough? And the other thing is that I was a really good bullshitter. Yeah. A really good bullshitter. People thought that I was using, but when the drug test would come back clean, they'd be like, maybe it's just fucking weird. Yeah. You know, I remember this lady coming to my house to drug test me. And my whole family was there that day. And they were like, this kid is on all sorts of drugs. Like, we don't know what the fuck's wrong with him. And when she came back, she was like, well, his drug test came back negative. And my sister was like, I don't give a fuck what that shit says. Look at him. The kid's green. Yeah. And I was like, no way. I'm clean. But when people haven't met you clean, they think you just look like that. Yeah. So this lady just thought that I looked gray and green and like fucking half awake. My family has known me clean and they know this isn't me you know yeah for sure well even the lady that was the facilitator for ipn had called the ipn right at any given time if they're suspicious like you come once a week my meeting was once a week on wednesdays right and i came in and um and if she's suspicious she can call the ipn and she could say hey i want to drop john Mm -hmm. right he needs to go and drop immediately right they give you one hour they know that like people have all the tricks in the world Mm -hmm. they give you one hour to get to the lab well, she called and she was suspicious of me. She asked for me to go to the lab and um, to drop. And I had never gotten this order before. Go and you have to do an observed urine. They're going to watch. Oh, me. they don't watch you normally. They don't watch you normally. It's a regular lab core, a quest. Yeah, it's you know, super something. easy to fake. Yep. So I walked in and the lady says, um, it says you need an observed urine. And I said, yeah, I'm freaking. I'm thinking I'm caught. I'm done. There's no way that I could do it. I still brought urine with me thinking mm-hmm. somehow I'm going to get through with this. And this is, you know, it's one of those things that addicts are sneaky. I was there. They were getting ready to close 20 minutes before they were going to close. I don't have time to get to another one. And she says to me, I'm not allowed to observe you. We don't have any male employees here. So you're going to have to just go in and give me urine, and I'm going to have to say it was observed. Mm. And, like, I felt like I got saved at that God, moment. God is looking out God for you. God <laughs> was looking out for me, right? And I remember coming back in, and this the facilitator was like, she looked me right in the face. She said, I was sure you were high. I was sure. You showed her. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> negative, bitch. Right? You know? <laughs> and and the craziness is, is that, you know, that I started to believe my own lies. Like, I remember finishing the course, the requirement, the five years. And when the five years was done, the group of participants, like, all said things to me, like, how much they admired me, and they can't wait till they're in my shoes because I was the last participant. You know, I'm done. Five mm-hmm. years, all these ones that are behind me, I've got three, four years to go. Are you pretending to be in a 12-step program at this point? So, yeah, I'm pretending to to go to meetings. I'm pretending to, that I have a sponsor. I'm so pret- crazy. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretending all of this stuff. I had never walked into any 12-step program at all. I'd never had – I hadn't gone to treatment. I hadn't done any of this stuff. So – um. That same year that I got put in there, I the guy I told you about that um, he was my mm-hmm. friend's boyfriend, moved in with me. We start hanging out together. We're inseparable. And my family's worried. My family's like, one of them is going to die. You know, I've got track marks at this point. Um, there's 
just been so many signs, you know, just completely knotted out. Me and this guy, I'm going to just say his name. It's a nickname anyway, Flav. I called him Flav. And we were in Hialeah. We went to Hialeah. We got a bunch of cocaine. We had a bunch of opiates. We had needles. We were going to shoot up. We were going to party. We were going to have sex. And we're in a hotel. And November 4th, 2003, I shot up, shot him up with the exact amount, exact same thing. And he dropped over and died instantly. Wow. And when I tell you the amount of fear in me, the amount of panic, I didn't know what to do. Like, as crazy it is, here I'm a registered nurse. I've never felt so much powerlessness in my life. And because you're a nurse, you knew he was dead instantly? Did so you I, try to do chest compressions? So I tried everything. So I went like a crazy person. I dumped ice on top of him. I did chest compressions. I gave him CPR. I punched him in the chest. Like, I was trying to get any kind of movement out of him whatsoever. But in this whole time, all that my brain is telling me is, oh, my God, I need help. I need 911 to be called, right? So I picked the phone up. I dialed 911. And now I'm trying to get back to doing CPR. But I'm also naked. And there's drugs all over this room. And I don't know what to do. And I'm just freaking out. And I'm screaming. And I'm hoping that, you know, like he's just done too much. And he's out. And they're going to be able to revive him. You know, because I can't tell you whether I could feel a pulse or anything because I was, I was shaking. I was a wreck. And they came in. They came walking in, the paramedics. And within 30 seconds of being there, they just said, we're sorry, he's gone. And I remember just losing my shit and just freaking out, falling to the floor. And they dragged me. These guys, like, picked me up, and they dragged me to another room, an empty room in a Holiday Inn. Hmm. And I sat there, and my brain was going a million miles a minute. I didn't know, what am I getting arrested? Who's going to call his family? His family didn't know that we were together. They didn't know that, you know, that we were intimate. They didn't know any of this stuff was going on. It became very secretive. And here I was, somebody who came out of the closet, kept it secret for 30 years of my life. And now I'm 33 years old, and I'm almost 34 years old, and I'm having to keep my whole entire relationship secret. And I'm having to just pretend that we're just friends that like to stay in hotels together a lot, mm -hmm. you know? And I remember leaving that hotel at 5 o'clock in the morning. It was crazy. Even with 13 years clean, like, the part of the story I'm thinking about is, like, what happened to the drugs? Yeah, so the drugs were there. And what's crazy is the police didn't offer me to take the drugs, but they did offer, do you want any of your paraphernalia or any of your um, sex so toys? <laughs> wow. So wait, they took the drugs, the cops? Yeah. They found them? Yeah, yeah. So there was a there was a tray of cocaine and there were, there, you know, there was... Um, and they were trying to give you back the paraphernalia? Was, That's so, crazy. Yeah. So they, they the like, I had, a, I had a bag full of like, um, you know, clean needles. So that was a, the other thing is that, you know, um, I never shared needles. I never had to. Like I was a nurse in mm -hmm. an ER. I like got as many needles as I needed, you know, so I never shared needles. I never did some of those things that you hear addicts doing. I used clean needles. I always disinfected, mm -hmm. right? Like it's a crazy thing here. We're shooting up, you know. Oh, that's crazy. Shit. Yeah, I would disinfect. <laughs> you would shoot like, up and you, disinfect you, and wipe it down. Yes, like the whole, like, I'm going to do it with an aseptic technique. And, there you go. And, and keep, safe this yeah, way. keep it safe, right? You know, the, that's the illogical um, things. But I remember. Did you get arrested? I did not. I did well, not. What, why do you think that is? I think that they simply thought. He's a dead addict, nobody's problem anymore, and they felt sorry for me. You're just another addict that just has a problem. This is and in Florida? This is in Florida, in Hialeah. Wow. And um, I don't know, like, I never got closure with that. I never got to go to his um, funeral. His friends 
Cuban guy, his friends um, all threatened me and said, you know, that he wouldn't have, that they heard about like how they found him naked that, you know, then there was all these accusations of like, you know, I must have done something to him to get him that way because he was this machismo type of guy. Mm -hmm. Um, And here I am, this feminine guy and that, you know, it just didn't match up. Yeah, they felt like you like got him on drugs or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I was to blame and and literally I'm I'm not a fighter at all. So like when I got calls from his friends that said, you know, you show up at his funeral service, we're gonna kick your ass. I had to make up my mind at that time. I need to say goodbye without saying goodbye at that moment. I need to have closure and and try to heal. And I didn't know what that would look like. And so I embarked on my very first time going to to treatment. My parents brought me down to this um, place called Summer House, Summer House Detox, mm-hmm. and they kept me so high, I mean really high, and I just, I didn't want to leave. Like I went down there, they told me how much it was going to cost per day, I was a cash pay, and um, I was there for six days, and my parents came to pick me up at the seventh day, and I was like, I think I need a few more days here. Like I just <laughs> didn't want to leave. Um, I remember just sleeping, being on the couch, comfortable. All my problems and all my woes went away because they just kept me completely sedated. And I got out of there, and I think I had an unrealistic expectation of what was going to happen as well. I thought I was going to get out of this detox, and I was just going to return to regular life, and everything would be okay. And the obsession and compulsion kicked in within days, and I found myself sneaking and using. And then I started to tell myself, well, the problem is using needles, or the problem is the amount that I'm using. The problem is, is how I'm taking them. And so I started to convince myself I could just go back to those five milligram Percocets and everything will be fine. And it wasn't. And very quickly, I found myself needing to go back into IPN. So somebody reported me and said that they thought that I had relapsed and I had only been out for a few months. Um, I think I got out in October and back in in January. So, um, but somebody reported me and they put me back in IPN. Um, I voluntarily, again, went for the evaluation and went in. And I started the process and started thinking, you know, that I'm going to try to do it this time. But the struggle was real. Like, I was not able to stay clean. And I was, you know, and I wasn't trying to use anybody's urine to get away with it. I just was trying to get from one time to the next. And I started to do illegal stuff to get drugs. I started writing prescriptions, fraudulently writing prescriptions. And... I got away with it for a really long time, a really, really long time. I got away with it. And one day I went into a CVS pharmacy to pick up something, and I started to get scared. I started to feel like, wow, there's a long delay here. Why am I having to wait so long? And just as I was getting spooked and I thought I need to get out of here, something's wrong, I went to turn around and there were a ton of cops there. Hmm. Full battery, everything on. They pushed me up against the Charmin laundry detergent and the Charmin toilet (laughs) paper, and they're like patting me down and they're asking me questions, and I'm shaking. And again, the bullshitting came into play. They didn't arrest me at that moment. Like at that moment, I didn't have to go to jail. At that very moment, they um, they said to me, they bought the line of bullshit that I told them. I told them the prescription was real. It was in somebody else's name. I told them that she asked me to pick it up for her because she has a uh, autoimmune disorder and she can't. She's practically crippled. Have it, you practiced this line in your head? No, like it just <laughs> came. Out. It just came out right at that moment. Like, but I'm like, I'm trying to sell this story to them because I'm mm-hmm. in fear of like they're going to arrest me at this moment. 
And so they told me they were going to do investigating, and they would get back to me, and they gave me a case number. Months went by. I didn't hear anything. And I'm like, oh, my God, I've gotten away with this, right? I stopped writing the prescriptions out of fear, right? Like, I can't get out there and write any more prescriptions. But I'm positive I've gotten away with this. So I'm going to my IPM meetings. I'm putting together usually about 8 to 10 days clean, right? Mm -hmm. Struggling, detoxing hard, dope sick, but I'm staying clean. And then I would use, get a little relief for a weekend, and then start that whole process over, this nightmare. And one day I just pick up the phone, and it's this detective, and he's like, I think you know what I'm calling you for. And I was like, no, actually, I have no idea what you're calling. You know, I think you got the wrong number, right? And he says to me, um, we're going to need you to come down to Plantation Police Department. And just to give you a heads up, you will be going to the county jail. And I just started crying. I'd never been to jail before in my life. I was really, really scared. And I had long hair at the time, like really long hair. And I went in and this female officer, she's doing the, the intake and she's like, how tall are you? And I'm like, five, five. She's like, color your eyes. I said, blue. She goes, what color is your hair? And I'm like, well, it's sort of a brown. I'm going gray, and I have blonde highlights. And she goes, did I ask you if you were Beyonce, bitch? What fucking color hair do you have? And I just went, brown, brown, it's brown. Like, and, I, and I was, like, so nervous, and I was shaking so bad. And my brother, my brother convinced me to, to tape drugs to underneath my balls, right? He's like— Your brother convinced you to do this? Yeah, my brother's like, he's been to jail a bunch of times. He's like, you know— Tape some drugs to the underneath your balls. They're not going to check there. You're going to need them when you get in there. You're going to get dope sick. He's like, the most you're going to be in there is 24 to 48 hours. You'll get bailed out, but you need to have something in there. So I'm, I have this experience with this woman to asking me if I'm, you know, not, I'm not Beyonce bullshit, and I'm nervous. And they tell me that they're going to take me over to Cooper City to book me. The crime happened in Plantation, so I'm like really confused. Why am I going to Cooper City? So I go over, I get in the back of this car with this guy, and they take me over to Cooper City Police Department, and they bring me into a holding cell. And right at that moment, they said, we need you to completely strip down. And I'm freaking. I've got drugs taped underneath my balls. And I'm like, oh, my God, I don't know what to do. So as I'm pulling my pants off, I decide that the best thing to do is to pull the drugs off at the same time. And eat them. And I ate them. So, But I couldn't. Literally, I put the whole tape with the drugs and hair in my mouth, and I swallowed, and I went, like, I couldn't get it to go down. And the cop's like, are you okay? Mm. And I'm like, I'm just really nervous, and I'm, like, dry Choking. Wow. Yeah, and they finally went down, and they put me in a truck. Like, I don't know what it is, but, like, it was a box, literally a box, and they handcuffed me to this guy who had killer written on his mouth. He had, like, a golds in, and it said killer. And I am just shaking. I'm like, I'm how much drugs did you just eat? A lot, a lot. Opiates? Yeah, yeah. So opiates and Xanax together. So I think it was 90 milligrams of Roxy's and 90 milligrams of Roxy's. Yeah, so So three, three, three three thirties. Okay, so three thirties. Three thirties, and I think three bars. So okay, so that's like a nice. I'm gonna be heavily sedated. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm nervous. They and then you get the ball hair that amplifies it. Yeah, and so I'm <laughs> nauseous. I'm shaking, and 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 literally my first experience ever being arrested. I get to the Broward County Jail, and I don't know any of it. I don't know the system at all. I'm not street smart. Mm-hmm. I don't know any. So I have a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar bond, 
And I call up my family and I'm like, mortgage my house, do whatever you need to do, get me out of here. I had no idea that normally the next day your case gets in front of somebody and they usually lower your charges. But We posted it all. We posted it all, got me the hell out of there. The next day they lowered the charges from trafficking oxycodone to four felony counts of prescription fraud. Difference of one was a ten thousand dollar bond, the other one was two hundred and fifty thousand. Wow! And we posted for the two fifty. So when you post bond, is ten percent of that? Ten percent, right? yeah. Wow. Yeah. So and you can't call the bondsman up and, and say, like, "Oh, hey, so they yeah. they lowered it. I don't need your money anymore. It's done." Yeah. Needless to say, so that's war story jails. Um, another place where you think you're done. You're at your bottom. I remember my aunt Janet. We posted the bomb with my house as collateral, but we had to come up with money. I think it was five grand we mm-hmm. had to come up with. And my Aunt Janet came up with it. And she lent it to me. And my parents said this to her. Believe me, he's so scared. Believe me, he's had enough of this. He's never going to use again. If you get him out of jail, he wants to live a better life. Mm-hmm. And I think somehow in my mind, like, I believed that too at the time. Like, I believed, like... Yes, get me out of here. I'll do anything. This is really it. This is really it. And they let me out on New Year's Eve. That's the night I got out, right? I I went in on the 30th and um, New Year's Eve the next day. I was getting let out and I didn't have a phone with me. I didn't have any money. I went to the Publix on 17th Street, 17th and um, Andrews. Walked into the Publix crying and said, could I use a phone and called my family to come and pick me up. And all I could think about the whole entire time was, I know where one pill is. I know where one is. I'm dope sick. I need the relief. I need, and I knew that I was, the disease was so active. There was no relieving me of it. But that caused me, because of the arrest, I no longer could be an IPN as a volunteer. So they said, now I'm court ordered. So now I have a permanent mark on my nursing license that it says disciplinary action. Yes. Link to disciplinary action. Yes. Click the link and it starts to tell you about how I wrote prescriptions and got arrested. It's crazy. You could still have a license after that. I didn't think that I was going to be able to have a license, mm-hmm. right? So um, this led me to a little bit while longer of using, a little bit while um, more of thinking that, that I could do this, that I could still do it on my own without any help, right? And I think that part of the reason that I started out saying that, you know, we talk about the bottoms is that, you know, the day that I got clean, nothing special was going on. Nothing special was going on. Like it wasn't one of those moments of like, okay, that's enough. This really happened. I just woke up feeling like I've done enough to everybody. I've hurt everybody. I stole money from my aunt. I did things that I just didn't think I could live with anymore. So I had this big plan to kill myself. And I thought, for sure, I'm going to do this. And I will tell you 100%, I know this for a fact, I had zero fear of dying. Like, I thought that it would be a good way to go out, right? It would be a decent way to get out of this world. And so I had planned to go kill myself. And I went to this guy's house who, um, I'll just say as a caveat, had sold me fake drugs before. And I went to his house again, you know, because I never learned the first time. And I go there, and it's July of 2012. And I go and I buy 10 Roxy's. And I'm shaking so bad. I'm planning to... He was selling fake Roxy's at the time? So this was the second time I got Fentanyl sold. Fentanyl Roxy's are just like... No, no, fake. Like, just literally, like, they're just fake. There's nothing in there. Oh, my God. They're the worst. What a bad so, guy. Yeah. So July, I'm shaking. And my thought is, 
I'm just going to do one of these. I'm going to snort one of these. And if I snort it, the shaking will stop, the dope sick will stop, and then I'll shoot the other nine, and that'll for sure kill me. And I'm going to write this note to my family, let them know what a piece of shit I am, and that, you know, I stole Aunt Linda's money, and she, it should be federally insured. She should get it back. Just let them know what a piece of shit I am. So I've got this giant plan to, to do this, and I go and I snort this one, and it turns out to be fab laundry detergent. And bubbles are just coming out of my mouth, and I'm oh in a car. Oh, my God with no air conditioning and I'm sweating and it's July and I look at the other nine of them and think maybe they're not all fake and so I do another one. Oh my god and the same thing and I you know I, two times I learned the lesson I was like okay all 10 are fake I'm not going to get high off of these and I'm out of money and I have no hustle left to me I'm 42 years old I'm as beat up as a person can get beat up and I keep thinking to myself, can I press the accelerator on the car and just go right into traffic and end this? And I broke down crying, and I called my mom, and I said, um, I'm going to go into treatment. And I didn't have insurance. I didn't have money. I didn't have connections. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anybody. I couldn't call up and say, hey, can you get me a scholarship? I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't know that there was a possibility for that. I just knew that the only place you could go if you didn't have insurance was Bark, right? And I was like, okay, I'm going to go there. And I've been there once before. And I don't know, like. Did you do the residential program too? Yeah, so I did. I did. Did you see me there? Huh? Because I used to do meetings. I've done yeah. meetings there for years. That's yeah. crazy. So I did see you there. I didn't know you then. Yeah. I saw you and I, um, and one of the people, and I tell him this all the time, um, was Walter. Yeah. I would see Walter there. He does like the mornings, I think, right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I had seen him in 2004, the first time I was there. And then again in 2012. And I'm like. This guy's still here. Wait a minute. Something's going on. What is happening here? How is this possible, right? Like, and it was like, blew my mind. I was like, how is this even possible? Mm-hmm. You know? So, um, I don't know. Like, I started to, to see that there was some kind of hope there. Um, but I was at that bottom, right? That I didn't know was a bottom at that time. And I remember going into the detox. And what had changed for me was I didn't give a shit if they gave me any medication. I didn't give a shit if they gave me any phone calls. I didn't care about anything. All I thought was, if I don't make it out of this, I don't want to live, right? And I remember guys like you coming in and bringing in an H&I. And I had this thought, like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to become a dork and freaking (laughs) bring meetings into treatment centers and carry a message. And, like, that was my introduction to um, 12 Steps. And Mm -hmm. um. And I knew, like, I knew that I wanted to do this. And I have some experiences from there, from that, and how it influenced my recovery and where that went off to is this woman that was my counselor. Once again, I felt like I got put in a box. You don't belong with everybody else. She handed me a list, a meeting list, and she circled all these LGBT meetings. In our area, there's one every single night of the week. And she said to me, you should go here. You'll find people like you who can help you. But what I heard was, and she didn't say this. This is the disease. Yeah. What I heard was the other 120 meetings a week aren't meant for you. You won't fit in there. Don't go there. Wow. These seven, they're for you. Right on target. Wow. And I know that she didn't say that. And I know that, you know, that that was my disease after doing some step work. Um, and I'm grateful that those meetings were there. There are some people that don't believe LBGT should be separate meetings. 
I don't believe they should be. Yeah, there because like this when I did a traditions workshop, there was a guy with like thirty years clean and a guy with like thirty four years clean. They were arguing about men's meetings, and the guy was like, "My home group's been a men's meeting for thirty years, and I love men's meetings and whatever." And the other guy was like. You know, technically, it's not a special need. There shouldn't be a, a difference between men and women meetings. If you can't say what you want to say in front of a woman, that's your problem. But we shouldn't have meetings that are for specific sexes or race or religion or any of that. It'd be no different than having a black meeting, you know, or a white meeting or whatever. So if you have to have a men's meeting, how does this better serve the newcomer? If they're looking for a meeting and they're a woman and they walk in... Yeah, they might not tell them to leave, but it's going to be uncomfortable, you know. But at the same time, I do understand that, like, some people, you know, might feel more comfortable at an LBGT meeting or something, you know. Yeah, so I have I have this belief system. So I'm super grateful that they were there. Those meetings were there. Had they not been there, I'm not sure that I would have stuck around. I mm-hmm. was so uncomfortable with who I am. I'm there talking about, you know, that I had a boyfriend who died and— the crazy thing is, is, so my boyfriend died in 2003. I didn't get clean until 2012. If you would have asked me, because time was in, a, I was in a warp, I thought it was a year or two ago. And wow. when I had to sit there and go, oh, my God, almost a whole decade has gone by, right? Like almost a whole decade has gone by. I was the opposite. I felt like three years ago was like 10 years ago. It was like last year or something when I was using like. That's yeah, crazy. so it was. It felt like it was just happened to me, and so I was dealing with all that stuff. I think that you know, had I not been able to ask a gay man to sponsor me, I think that those things were probably factors that helped me. But what I did learn is, in that year, I felt like I was in a bubble. I felt like, oh, I go to these seven meetings, and I heard this girl share at a meeting, and she had she was a young girl, mm-hmm. you know her, um, and she shared, and she said. Narcotics Anonymous is bigger than your home group. Narcotics Anonymous is bigger than your area. She's like, it's a worldwide fellowship. And I thought to myself, I only know about these seven meetings, right? I only know, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Like, I only know about these seven meetings. And so I started to like explore and go other places and to go to meetings that are considered mainstream meetings. And what I found out was when I went there, none of the people that were in those seven meetings that I went to They didn't come to the mainstream meetings. And I started to say, where are they getting their recovery from? Where are they getting their information from? Mm -hmm. And they're in the the room with the same people and they're there. And so, uh, you know, for being a gay man, I get a lot of flack about that because I truly and honestly believe I tell my sponsees, I happen to have a lot of gay sponsees. I have some straight, which is amazing Mm -hmm. too, but I have gay sponsees. And when they ask me to sponsor them, I do two things. I say, one, I work one fellowship. Um, Mm -hmm. The second thing is, is that I can't support you in going to one type of meeting. You need to be able to, our literature talks about we visit various groups, Mm -hmm. various groups. And our strength is in diversity and all these other things. Exactly. And so what I, I, and I remember this, um, there was a guy from Miami came down and he spoke at a meeting and in his share, he said, I feel so bad for the gay guys in in NA, right? He's like, they get picked on like crazy. The women don't want anything to do with them, and the men sure as shit don't want anything to do with them. And I'm this person that was, like, taught not to cross-talk. 
I couldn't help it. Like, I, as soon as he was done sharing, I raised my hand and I said, you know, that's not my experience here. Mm-hmm. I said, and that kind of message is not our message. I said, when I decided that I could go to a mainstream meeting and I didn't need to be boxed into a special interest meeting, what I found is that the men love me and the women love me even more. Mm-hmm. And, and I found acceptance wherever I was at. And I needed that. I needed to grow and I needed to feel like that there was an opportunity to actually recover. Absolutely. So, so I was going to say, so <laughs> I do want to talk about this because it's that it's important. It's more the most relevant thing that's going on in my life today. I'll share some of the hope stuff, too, because I think that that's really important. The disease won. It kicked my ass. It beat me up. Um, and it got me to the place of where I didn't know what surrender meant, but it happened. It happened for me. And then I got to find out about that this year. You know, we're coming out of a pandemic and 2020 wasn't all that much fun. Right. You know, like we conventions were canceled, um, all the fun stuff that we love to do that we get to learn how to do here. And we and it becomes part of our social life on January 3rd, 2021. I turned 51 years old and I'm sitting at dinner with all my friends, all my friends from recovery. And I'm sharing that, you know, like I feel depressed. I feel sad. I feel like we don't get to hug each other. We don't get to go out to dinner that often. We're not seeing each other at meetings. Things feel really, really different. They feel like, I don't know if I would have stayed clean if I would have came in at this time. It just doesn't have the feeling like it used to have. And right at that very moment, my phone rang. And um, my brother, Christopher, we call him Boo, said, where are you at? And as soon as he said that to me, I knew something was wrong because we had just talked and I told him I was going out to dinner. And I just said, what's going on? And he said, they found Anthony. Anthony dead. Anthony's my 35-year-old brother. And like, I knew when he called, like it was the most weird thing in the world. Like my gut told me something's wrong. Why is he calling me back? I just talked to him. He knew I was going out to dinner. And... You know, we had gotten a lot of calls as a family that he had overdosed, that he was in ICU, that they had to Narcan him, like, lots of times, like, 20, 30 times, like, a lot of times. And something happened at this moment. Like, you just, when you realize that this isn't a dream, it's not fake, you can't reverse it, there's no taking it back, it's permanent, right? And I, I just remember feeling like I don't know what to do. And this is where the miracle of this program is. I was surrounded by sponsees, surrounded by my best friend who's in recovery, surrounded by friends that love me. And I walked outside hysterically crying. And the first person I called was my sponsor. You know, and I picked the phone up and I knew I didn't want to use. Like I knew for me that that wasn't going to be a solution. That wasn't going to be an answer. And as I was driving, my sponsee drove me to my mother's house to go there. Like I was too much of a wreck to drive my own car. And I put the correlation at that very moment, like in the worst possible moment that I can possibly remember in my whole life, I put together that I didn't come here to go to a convention. I didn't come here to go to a meeting and fellowship afterwards. I came here because I literally thought I was going to die. You know, I thought for sure I'm going to be dead, right? And at that moment, like, I knew that there was going to be a lot of grief. There's going to be a lot of pain. But I knew that I want to continue. I want to continue to grow. I want to continue to share that, you know, addicts don't have to die. There is an answer. There's a way out. It takes some work. It takes getting to the surrender. It's difficult for us to, 
you know, as sponsors, as friends of people that are in recovery, we start to love these addicts. They come into our lives and sometimes like Mm -hmm. you see them struggling and you want to help so bad. You know, I have all these sponsees who've got years and years clean now. I have grand sponsees. Like, it's crazy that I have made an impact and helped other people stay clean, but I couldn't help my own brother stay clean. And I will tell you that, you know, my sponsor, my sponsor Bill, when Bill was sponsoring me, used to say to me, he's going to get you to use before you get him clean. Yeah. And I believed him. I did. I put some distance, and I know that I'm not powerful enough to get anyone clean, and I know I couldn't save him. I can't even say that if I could reverse things and go back in time, would I do anything different? I can't honestly say that because I did what I thought was the best move and I put some distance between us, Mm -hmm. some healthy distance. You know, he'd call me and the minute the phone rang, I believed he must be calling me about money. He must want something. And just recently, my brother spent a lot of time in prison and I found a letter. You know, I had a bunch of, uh, I don't know if you know what JPay is, but I had a of bunch course. of email JPay ones, right? But there was something special about it. I found a physical letter with his writing. Mm-hmm. And in it, like in the letter, he says, I can't wait to get out and go to meetings with you. I, I'm going to have 25 months clean. I can't wait to go to the world convention with you. I can't wait to do all these things. He saw my life. I gave my parents back their kid. I gave my other siblings back their brother. I gave my nieces and nephew back their uncle. You know, um, it's hard work. It's not always easy. And amazing things started to happen for me. Really amazing things. Like, you know, so in the amount of time that I've been clean, I've done, it's eight and a half years. August 1st, I'll have nine years. I never left the country. (laughs) 42 years old, I got clean. I never left the country, right? I have been to, the first place I went to was Hong Kong, then the Philippines. I remember we went to Hong Kong. Yeah. Yeah. Hong Kong, Philippines, Switzerland, glacier skiing in Switzerland. Wow. Right? Like, it wasn't even winter. Mm-hmm. And they took us up this freaking mountain that was so far up in the clouds. And I skied glacier skiing. You had to hold on to a rope, and they drag you up the mountain <laughs> on your skis. And then you just turn around and go down the mountain. You know, no ski lift to get up there. It was a crazy experience to Italy. I um, Two years ago, I went with a sponsee to Paris just because we could. Just him and I. I'm in France, and I go to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting, and I get asked to speak. That's cool. You know? And, like, these experiences. They translate it? Yeah. So I I spoke in English, and they translated in French, and it was amazing. And the welcoming I got was amazing. And it happened really organically, too. Like, I walked up to the meeting, and the guy said, are you from America? And I said, yeah. And he said, how much clean time do you have? And I think I had six years then. And and he was like, you're our speaker. And I was like... (laughs) Okay, why not? This is cool, you know. Um, I didn't have any dreams and thoughts to do stuff like that, to do fun stuff, to to do that. And yeah, you, know, you thought you were going to get clean and be a dork. Yeah, well, I also, you know, when I went into treatment, my nursing license was suspended. My home was in foreclosure. Things seemed really grave for me. And I thought, I think I can handle making a latte at Starbucks. That's mm-hmm. the kind of job I'm going to get. I'm going to get. That's what keeps people clean. Yeah. I'm telling you, whenever I hear someone with like grandiose ideas when they get first get clean, it just makes me want to like throw up. I'm just like, mm-hmm. oh, like, no, you're not starting a business. You're not going to make all this money. Like, go work at Starbucks, serve ice cream, do something simple because they don't understand the task at hand of staying clean. Like, it's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. It's not going to be easy. Don't think you can handle something else that's going to be somewhat hard, you know, like make it as easy as possible for you. 
because you're fighting a battle that um, statistically people don't win. Yeah. You know, you're fighting something that they say one in a thousand people make it to a year clean, you know? And it's like, uh, if you go in there thinking that you're going to be that one, but you don't want to do more work than everyone else, it's not going to happen. It's just like when you run a marathon, you know, people who've never ran a marathon before, you know, they go in overconfident and overconfidence kills people. You know, I don't go to meetings because I think it's a fun thing for me. I go to meetings because, you know, with 13 years clean, I still think that I need them. I still think that I'm there to save my own ass. I'm not there to help everybody else. Like my parents think that, you know, my parents think that I go to meetings because like I help all these people, but I go to meetings because I need it. You know, this is what I need to do because I believe when I'm, you know, active in my recovery, I'm the best version of myself. Yeah, for sure. I know it's given me, I hated that saying, you know, when I got in here, people would talk about a life beyond my wildest dreams. Mm -hmm. I hated that saying, like I thought it was a showboaty saying. And then I remember, I remember when I said, oh my God, I actually have a life beyond my wildest dreams, right? And in my wildest dreams, did I believe that I was going to have a brother die of this disease? No. And there's a part of me, this martyr part of me that wants to say, like, life isn't fun anymore. There's nothing left for it. You know, how can I be happy that, you know, my brother's gone? And I, I believe this. I believe that, you know, the only way for me to honor my brother is to carry the message and to share about what his struggles were and that he saw that this was a way of life. He saw that there was a way out. He just didn't know how to get there. He didn't, bottoms happen for people in different forms. Unfortunately, you know, he didn't get out of his. And, you know, I'm grateful for this life. I'm grateful that I got this opportunity. I did some amazing stuff. Like I went back to school. That was a crazy thing for me because if you would have saw me at 42 years old getting clean, I was so beat up. You would have thought there's never going to be a smile on this guy's face. There's never going to be any happy and joy. Um, it's just going to be dread. And I have more happy days than I have sad days. I went back to school. I put something in motion. It's a little crazy that I put it in motion, but I um, I did it out of fear. And fear, fear can be a heavy motivator. But I went back to school because I was afraid that I was going to lose my current job, the full-time job that I have now. I thought I was going to lose it. And I thought I need to have a backup plan. So I went back to school to become a nurse practitioner. And I uh. struggled. I struggled so bad. So wait, how did you, did you lose your license? You never lost your license. So I never lost it, got suspended. It got suspended. How long did you work at Starbucks? I didn't, I never went to go work there. So- <laughs> Where'd you go? So I went and worked at the polls, the, mm -hmm. um, the sorting ballots for 10 bucks an hour. That was my recovery job. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, and I did it for a while. Like there was a recount. So like they were like, oh, got to recount all these ballots. And I was like, great, more work. $10 an hour job. And I was just really You think really it's true okay. what they say that there's fraud with the, the ballot counting? Sure, sure there is. <laughs> sure there is. Sure, on both sides, though. <laughs> That's both so sides. funny. Yeah. I was really grateful to be able to have money in my pocket to buy a cup of coffee, to be able to say to my mom, you know, um, oh, here's the 70 bucks for my phone bill, rather than just her paying my phone bill, you know, just to speak about that. So I take making amends so seriously, right? Like I believe in it. My mom has never paid a phone bill since I've been clean. So cool. Right? Like I just attached my mom's phone. This last year, my other two brothers, not the brother who passed away, like this is crazy. We had to leave him out of it because we knew he wouldn't be able to. But my other two brothers, we decided to buy my mom a car. And we leased it. And I said to my brothers, they were like, it's really cool. And I said, okay, but guys, if we do this, it's a two-year lease. Every two years, we got to get her a new one. 
right? Like we can't just buy her a car for yeah. two years and let yeah. it rot. I said, can't just buy her a car for two years. And they were like, no, no, we're in this. And like, we get to do that for our mom. We get to do, you know, to show up. And, you know, that wouldn't happen. If I was in the grips of addiction, that couldn't happen. Going back to school, like finishing IPN and really like, I remember the first time I went to a lab core to piss, I was like, please observe it, right? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. I know I'm pissing clean. And I, and I was happy to be in that state. I was happy to know that the most incredible thing happened. The obsession and compulsion got lifted. And I don't remember the day that it happened. I know that I struggled in the beginning. I have learned here that anything worthwhile for me, I'm going to struggle. Mm-hmm. Nothing comes easy for me. It just doesn't come easy for me. Um, going through school to be a nurse practitioner, went back to school at 45 years old, and it didn't come easy. When I went to nursing school, it was easy. Like, I was the smartest kid in the class. I, it was easy. Like, I went through women's health, and vaginas usually take me down. It took me <laughs> down. I could not pass it. Like, I just couldn't get it. Like, I had to repeat women's health, and I felt defeated. Mm-hmm. And my, my current sponsor, I have a female sponsor now, and she said to me, you know, why do you think it should come easy to you? Are you doing your best? Are you willing to put the extra effort in? Like, and I had to do those things. Like I had to re and I wanted to quit. I remember calling her and saying, I'm just not going to do it. And she says, no, you're going to do it. You have one class left. You're going to retake it. You're going to do it. I took my boards the first time, didn't pass them. Hmm. Felt defeated. Like, oh my God, what is going on? And I failed them by one point. Like they give you the score. I failed Mm -hmm. by one point. So, and and my disease took off. I'm like, I'm going to take it again. I'm going to fail, but I'm going to fail by worse. You know, like I'm going to second guess myself. And I learned spiritual principles here, and one of them is perseverance. And I learned life lessons that, for me, um, they matter more than anything now. Like some of the stuff that my sponsors taught me, she always says this. It's my favorite line. She says, water seeks its own level. And she teaches me. You know, she teaches me constantly about pay attention to people. If they show you they don't care about you, believe them, you know? Walk away from relationships that are toxic. She's taught me that... um, You know, people that matter in your life show up. And she taught me how to show up. You know, we have a relationship second to none. It's I feel so close to her, love and adore her. She hates that I work now in in treatment. (laughs) Um, She doesn't want me to forget where I came from and that where the lessons come from. And I've learned, you know, I came to you when it first started. And, you know, um, working in treatment as a nurse practitioner. And I, I wanted to make sure that I was able to maintain professionalism and I get to share some experience, strength, and hope, but always remembering the professional that I am at that moment. Mm-hmm. And it's become super rewarding. I love it. I feel I feel proud of myself because I love it so much. Something I had not planned on doing at all was not something that was in the cards, not part of the dream. Mm-hmm. As I start in August um, to do my doctorate, and I'm doing it in psych mental health wow. because that's the preference in that field. So for people that don't know, being a nurse practitioner is a big deal. So it's like... You could write prescriptions. There's basically nothing you can't do that a doctor does. Like, what's the difference that an MD can do that you can't do? So, not really much anymore. So yeah. It depends on the state that you're in. In Florida, we're very, we're, we're very lucky. And I will tell you, so that's the part that blew my mind probably more than anything that I've accomplished, is here I got arrested for prescription fraud, mm-hmm. and I have a DEA license. Wow. Like, they awarded this addict a DEA, a DEA license, but I earned it. I earned it. Like, it did, just didn't get handed to me. I earned it. I remember, uh, you know, because obviously, like, I own and operate a treatment center. And I remember the first time uh, this package came to the detox, and it had my name on it. And I was like, like, no one has this address. Why is something getting shipped for me? And I opened it, and I'm like, what are these? And uh, 
the DON was like, those are our prescription pads. And I was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, well, and like I have a DEA form that I filled out to hold level two narcotics, you know, in a safe. And it's like, um, it was a surreal because like I knew owning a detox would allow that, but it's like a weird, surreal feeling to know that I have a facility that has scheduled two narcotics in a safe that are licensed to me as the owner to be able to hold. And That's I'm crazy. It's like, what? You know, I, people wouldn't even let me babysit a cat or like, you know, my parents wouldn't even leave me at home by myself. Like my parents didn't go on trips for years at one point because they were like, we can't leave Brian alone. Yeah. And um, it's a surreal feeling to have the tables turn in your favor. Yeah. And um, I always tell myself like they can turn back. Yeah, I remember when the when the prescription pads came in and and my name was on it with my license number and my DEA number and I was like this it's so surreal. I'm like this is something that's incredible. I remember being on the interview to come work there and and the question was asked, how do you feel about prescribing um psychiatric medications? And I was like, I don't know, I've never prescribed anything. Yeah. <laughs> this is all new for me. Like I have no, I was so honest about it. I was like, I've never, I've never written prescription one yet, you know, hmm. legally anyway, yeah. you know, so I don't know, like, you know, life happens, we get through hurdles, we get monumental things that happen that we get to live amazing lives. And we go through painful situations at the same time. And we get through to the other side clean. Um, you know, I believe the things that were said to me wholeheartedly, is that if you don't know the last day you used, you haven't had it. And if you don't know your clean date, you haven't had that yet either. Um, how much school is left for you to get your doctorate? Okay, so that's going to be a two-year program, right? Uh -huh. It's a two-year program. And so originally what happened was I met one of the nurse practitioners who has a DMP that um, worked in the detox. And she said to me, you know, you can do a certification. It's a one-year program, right? So I was like, oh, I should just do this certification. Then I looked into it and found out, oh, it's really 18 months. It's not a year. And I found this school in North Florida that does the whole thing and you get a doctorate at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so you literally go through a DMP program. So I will literally What's DMP? doctorate in nurse practice. Mm -hmm. So I will literally be Dr. John. Wow. Yeah. And like, have I'm, you started it yet? So I started in August. I was supposed to start in January. Mm -hmm. My brother, I was supposed to start the, with your brother. And my everything. brother passed away January 3rd. So I didn't start. I postponed it. But um, I've got full admission and mm -hmm. um, I'm ready to go. And and I feel like we never count our chickens. What is it? Count your eggs before your chickens hatch or count your chickens before your eggs hatch? Don't ever count your chickens before your eggs hatch. Yeah. yeah. So I believe in that saying, you know, I try not to do that. Mm -hmm. But I also have learned that anything I put my mind to, um, since being clean, I'm able to I'm able to fulfill it and be there. And like so, I see it happening, mm -hmm. and I want it to happen. And I have found a new passion that I had no idea. Like I'm going to tell you, I did not start school at 45, which is six years ago. I did not start school thinking I think I'm going to go work in a treatment facility. Mm -hmm. There was no desire whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I found this passion, and I and and I love. I love meeting with the clients and especially when they come in and they don't think that they have any hope or they think that it's all over for them. And I say, really, you think it's all over? And I just throw them a little bit about what's happened to me and say, like, look where I'm sitting. I'm mm -hmm. sitting here taking care of you. And I was on the other side of that, yeah. you know, and I know what that's like. That's amazing. Well, I'm going to put it on the universe. Dr. John, I'm excited for you. I'm so happy that you could come out and do the show. It was really amazing. I appreciate you. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you.
This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.